welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. I'm Cheryl Nason. This is a show about books and the people who write them. Each week we feature conversations with top authors of fiction and nonfiction about their latest work. And all of those conversations are available for you, our listeners, as free downloads on iTunes. So you might want to take advantage of that. People are seldom who they seem to be. Events are unpredictable with unforeseen consequences years down the road. These themes are played out in New York Times best-selling author Sandra Brown's latest novel, Tough Customer, published by Simon & Schuster. Hard-boiled former cop-turned-private investigator Dodge Hanley comes up against his past when a midnight phone call sets him on a collision course with the love of his life, a daughter he's never known, and a psychopathic stalker with his own agenda. Author Robert Wicks, intense political thriller, The Hornbrook Prophecy, published by Crystal Dreams Publishing, poses an all-too-plausible and somewhat frightening question. What would happen if the United States government suddenly went bankrupt? Sandra Brown is the author of 58 New York Times bestsellers, and her work has been translated into 33 languages. She attended TCU, majoring in English, and was recently awarded an honorary doctorate of humane letters by her alma mater. Prior to embarking on her writing career, she worked as a model at the Dallas Apparel Mart, and she worked in the Dallas-Fort Worth market as a television person. Her awards include the Texas Medal of Arts Award for Literature, Benet Brith's Distinguished Literary Achievement Award, the A.C. Green Award, the Romance Writers of America Lifetime Achievement Award, and she was voted Thriller Master for 2008. That's the top award given by the International Thrill Writers Association. Sandra's with us today to talk about her latest thriller, Tough Customer. Sandra, welcome. Thank you so much, Cheryl. And I'm happy to correct one fact on there. Tough Customer became my 59th New York Times bestseller. Wow, that's a great correction to be able to make. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Well, I just, I love this book. I mean, it, it was so much fun. It's a real thrill ride, if you'll pardon the expression. And let's well, just... I don't mind that expression at all, and, and I think that's a fantastic adjective uh, to describe any book, but I'm especially thrilled that you're using it to describe a uh, tough customer. Let's tell our listeners just a little overview. We don't want to give away too much, but let's interest them in what you and I will be talking about. Well, uh, I, I carried over uh, a character from last year's Smash Cut um, because Dodge Hanley was such a interesting character to me, and um, I didn't even know that that he existed. He he wasn't in my proposal. He wasn't in the synopsis. Um, but when I was writing Smash Cut, he walked into a scene and started a conversation with the lead character of that book, and I immediately was intrigued by this, this character and um, enjoyed him throughout the writing of that novel. And then when I got to the end of it, I wanted to investigate him further. I wanted to know what had made him such a cynic and what had given him such a low regard for mankind in general. 
and um, I, I thought he would make an interesting, worthy uh, character to build a story around. And so that's how I came up with the with the backbone of uh, Tough Customer. And and it was easy uh, to kind of flesh his character out. He had so many interesting facets to me. Um, he was cynical and he was uh, unscrupulous, and yet he had a very strong core of honor, I felt like. And that, that was the aspect of him that I wanted to explore. It was like, how, how deep do you have to dig before you find this man at his most vulnerable and uh, so that's kind of where Smash, uh, where Tough Customer came from. And the general story is that he gets drawn into a murder investigation uh, involving the daughter that he has not seen since the day of her birth. And I'm not giving anything away. This 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 happens in the in the first few pages. You you know their relationship. But um, I thought it would be interesting to bring in the love of his life. Uh, since he's such a ladies' man now, <laughs> and uh, and also to to kind of explore this um, this softer side of Dodge by giving him this child, this young woman, very accomplished young woman that he's he's had nothing to do with for all these years, and uh, so it, it made for a lot of conflict um, just inside the the family, inside the psychology, you know of, of dodge his head and then also i gave him a pretty scary opponent um oh, you too. <laughs> did. i have to combat <laughs> this villain sounds like unfortunately he could have come out of the news i mean you know uh, that's what's so scary isn't it is yeah. that um to me that the most frightening villain is the one that is not obvious the one that is is not visible um i mean if you see some you know, skinhead or something with uh, <laughs> knives attached to his belt. You kind of know to avoid that individual. He looks mean, but I think the the scariest kind of a of, of villain is one that could be sitting beside you at work. And I mean, heaven knows we only have to listen to the headlines um, to know that you know sometimes people just hide really terrible aspects of their personality, that they're human time bombs uh, just waiting to go off. And such was the case uh, with Oren um, in Tough Customer. Um, he's a very mild-mannered, uh, very um, intelligent individual, uh, but he's hiding this psychopathic <laughs> aspect to his personality. And, you know, you're absolutely right. You never know what could trigger. How many times have we all heard a news report where they've talked about some serial killer or somebody that's done something horrible, and all of the neighbors always say, you know, he was such a nice young nice man. Nice man, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, to to uh, the outward eye, or indefinitely was, and and um, Barry, the uh, one of the heroines of, of Tough Customer, um, was a coworker, and um, little did she know that this this man that she worked very closely with, you know, was harboring all of these uh, sociopathic tendencies. And um, then a series of events kind of sets him off, and then he becomes a very formidable um, enemy. Not only because he's so cruel and violent, but 
he's also smart enough uh, to know how to get away with it. And uh, and and so I thought he, for that reason, um, he was a he was an excellent villain. In that your book is only as good as your villain. Oh. You've got to give your protagonist an opponent that's worthy of them. And uh, so in this case, he even as smart as Dodge is, um, and with all of his experience and you know investigating. This guy uh, throws him a couple of curves, and uh, so it's a real challenge for Dodge. And not only that, but this is one case in which he has a, a you know, he's he's bested personally, and uh, so that makes it even more difficult for him. And it's fun to watch Dodge sort of change because when we first meet him in the book, he's really pushing back. He's he's gotten this midnight surprise phone call from mm-hmm. Carolyn King, who was the love of his life and the mother of Barry. Mm-hmm. And she woke him out of a sound sleep, and this is a voice that he hasn't heard in years. 30 years. 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 Yeah. And all of a sudden, she's asking him for help. And so he's pushing back. He's, he's, he doesn't live in, in the same area they do anymore. He's moved to Atlanta. He's got a new life. Granted, he's still a tough customer, and he really does, you know, you see that outward toughness. And all of a sudden, we start to see the bending that starts to occur because he keeps saying, I'm not going, I'm not going, I'm not, I'm not going. going. Yeah. And the next thing you know, he's on his way to Merritt, Texas, yeah. which, of course, I love. You know, you set your novel <laughs> in Texas, and you really made that a character in the novel. Well, thank you. I, I try to do that with each book, no matter what the setting is. Uh, I try to make... Um, uh, the setting, another character. Um, I uh, was always intrigued by the big thicket and that area of Texas, which a lot of people, a lot of people outside the state especially, don't even think of Texas in those terms. You know, they think of Texas in terms of a John Wayne movie, mm-hmm. um, which always has, you know, more like an Arizona exactly. <laughs> landscape. But, um, and, and so very few people know that, you know, this is a vast, swamp in southeast Texas, and it has its own lore um, going back for, uh, you know, centuries, because uh, in the 19th century, you know, a lot of outlaws were um, associated with it because they took refuge in it, and uh, they were either, you know, killed there or never came out, or they managed to escape, and so it's always kind of been a place with a you know, an intrigue uh, that's built in. And and uh, so I thought, that would be, you know, that would be good. And also give Dodge a environment that he's totally uh, unfamiliar with and, and which is outside his element. Um, he He's a city boy, you know, and he, um, he he's out of shape, and so he has to plunge into this very hostile territory. And uh, that gave him even one more uh, seemingly uh, unsurmountable obstacle toward achieving his goal, which is, as a novelist, that's what I try to do to my characters, make it as hard as possible. Exactly. Well, and you do that. You make him, he's an insider-outsider, because Mm -hmm. then we've got the deputy sheriff, Mm -hmm. Ski Nyland, who is a wonderful character. Thank you. Tall, dark, and literally handsome, you know. And they don't trust each other. You see this, that these are two strong men. Mm-hmm. 
and you see this head-butting contest sort of starting between the two of them, and they they gradually, we watch the relationship yeah. change. They come to respect each other's uh, modality. Um, Ski it came from uh, military, a very disciplined, you know, soldiering mentality, um, and following orders and everything more or less done in a very you know, strict manner. Dodge, Dodge's approach is entirely the opposite. He bends all the rules. He breaks some. Um, He doesn't like regulations. He doesn't like asking permission. Um, And so while one is operating within the the rule book, Dodge is definitely operating outside the rule book. And so um, this causes, you know, some, some initial friction between them and suspicion um, but at the same time, they each prove uh, worthy to the other. And uh, before too long, their methods are kind of overlapping, <laughs> which I thought com- was interesting. I liked that. They sort of wind up. It's a grudging respect. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And they sort of complete each other because one sees things the other doesn't. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's really important in this investigation because, as you said earlier, the Oren Starks character, the villain, is formidable. I mean, he's he's smart, he's intelligent, but he's also just a flat sociopath. Yeah, yeah, he And is. we watch bodies drop and horrible things happen. Yeah. I mean, Sandra, this is a, oh, my gosh. I mean, bodies <laughs> drop and you're just sitting there. Don't read this after dark. <laughs> well, thank you. That's well, what I, I try to thrill and chill. <laughs> you do in this one. I'll tell you what, and it will make you look at people on the street somewhat differently for a while as well. Well, I think so, yeah. It's, uh, I have a very suspicious nature in a way, and a very, a very nosy nature. Um, you know, I'll see um, a scenario being played out you know, in in some public place, um, two or more people, you know, or maybe just one, but but their their demeanor or their gestures or whatever it is will intrigue me. And even though I might not know what they're saying, it's like now, wonder what that's about. Mm-hmm. You know, wonder what what's going on here. So I have a very nosy. Um, <laughs> nature I want to get into everybody's business because I find it interesting but also it it generates ideas I think in a novelist that's called creative imagination <laughs> maybe <laughs> well what's next uh I'm working on a new book already um I will have one uh coming out around Labor Day again next year and um so it's untitled yet, but I do have my plot pretty well hammered out. So I've um, I've started writing out a new set of characters. Uh, this one's set in Louisiana, and um, that's all I'm prepared to say at this point. But um, I think it could be. I've got my hero in quite a quite a pickle, and uh, I think it's going to have the trademark Sandra Brown surprises along the way. I hope so. Oh, I love it. That's one of the things I enjoy so much about your work is the surprises and the twists and the turns because we think we've got it figured out, and all of a sudden something (laughs) comes up, you throw in a plot twist, and we go, 
I didn't see that coming. What's this? Well, thanks so much. I, I work very hard at that. I work very hard to to try to achieve that because, and sometimes I have to admit, I don't see the surprise coming. Um, some of my best plot elements and uh, and switches, um, I didn't know were going to happen until they happened. And then, guy, I'd I'd be sitting at my computer and go, oh, gosh, that's so good. <laughs> and it, it wouldn't, I feel like, you know, I didn't think it up. I feel like it just happened. And um, and there it is. And, and I have to be entertained, too. Um, I can't, I don't think you, a novelist, anybody could do this. It's too hard um, if, if you weren't having a good time also. And uh, if it's not fun for me, it's not going to be fun for my reader. So I'm my first reader, and um, I have to entertain myself first. And um, if I'm kind of nodding off, then I know, wait a minute, something's got to happen here. <laughs> this is boring. <laughs> I, you know, I love that you said that, and I don't think it's like with so many jobs. People look at people on television, as you know, and they think, oh, well, there's nothing to that. You just get up and talk, and they have no idea about the preparation behind it. They look at novelists or writers, and they think, well, you just sit down and do that. There's nothing to that. Oh, yeah. But there is. It's there hard is. Work. Yeah. It I think it's a combination of, first of all, you have to have the vivid imagination, mm-hmm. um, even to set things in motion. And and I've known a lot of great concept people that would come up with a real high concept, um, and it would make a great story. But it's not a story until you put it down on paper, and that's where the second element comes in, and that has to be the self-discipline to sit down and write it. And um, and and so it was. There is a combination of the two. Um, number one, you have to have the the talent of just storytelling. But number two, and probably more important, if not as, if not, yeah, as important, if not more important, is that you have to have the self-discipline to sit in a room by yourself for months and put that story into words. And that, that takes a lot of hard work. Well, I know that I can speak for your readers when I say we're so glad that you have that wonderful work ethic. Oh, thanks, Cheryl. Thank if you. our if our listeners want to know more about Tough Customer or any of the other novels that you've written or know more about you, I know you've got a website. And yeah, we just uh, we just got it all tricked out, too, with, um, oh, it's got uh, animation and it's got music and it, it looks great, I think. And I would think it was great if it was anybody's website, but um, this the, these guys did a fantastic job for me. It's uh, sandrabrown.net or .com. Either one will get you there. But um, it, it's really it's it's like watching the open is now like watching a movie. It's really exciting to me. Um, but it took months and months and months to design and to uh, bring about. But it was well worth the wait. We just we just revealed it about three weeks ago coinciding with the release of Tough Customers. So I'm real proud of it. So even if someone's visited the website before, they want to, might want to give it another look and visit all the pages because each page is like totally different and animated and everything. It's really cool. It is terrific. You're absolutely right. I went, I looked at it myself and I thought, wow, this is uh, cool. We have good, to be sure yeah. we talk about this. 
Well, you are delightful as always. It's such a pleasure to talk with you, and thanks for taking time out of your writing schedule to talk with us today on Inside the Writing. By all means, I was thrilled, and uh, thank you for inviting me. You're listening to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. Robert Wicks, O.D., is an optometric physician in private practice in Washington State. He's been active in state and local politics since 1996, and he writes a regional political newsletter. He's a contributor to The Sentinel that's published by the U.S. Army, and he's a frequent contributing columnist for The Daily World. He's with us today to talk about his taut political thriller, The Hornbrook Prophecy. Robert, welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe. This is a terrific book. Well, thank you very much, Cheryl. This is a complicated book, and it feels like, as I read through it, that you're either clairvoyant or that we rip this right out of today's headlines. Let's take our viewers with us a little and give them an overview of the book, and then let's talk about some specifics about the book. Sure. Um, <laughs> I wrote the original manuscript in 2003, but I kept I, I, the the storyline, the dateline was 2010 because I figured that a few things had to happen to fall into place politically. I originally wanted to write a disaster novel, um, but all of the disasters had been done, you know, the hurricanes and earthquakes and all that stuff. So I thought any really big impacting disaster is more likely to be social than natural. And so I thought if it's going to be social, that means the heavy hand of politics is going to play a role somewhere. So I sat down and just sort of looked at what was going on in the country and what the history had been and projected out how I think things could go. And so I I divided the book in my story into three sections. And I said, okay, here's a setup. Here's some things that would be happening politically, legislatively, um, creating some kind of omnibus legislative act that would have huge and widespread impact and, of course, the always inevitable but, but unintended consequences. That would lead to some sort of catastrophic uh, event, and that would be the first section of the book. The second section would be the chaos that, would, that could possibly ensue under such circumstances across the country, and I and I focused in on the on the plight of a single family and how it impacted them, and uh, it builds up to a to a climactic uh, action sequence, and then the third part of the book is where the the heroes kind of say, "All right, that's it. We've got to do something." And and there's this um, sudden uh, there's a sequence of events that that builds to this unexpected conclusion that that suddenly there's a whole new plan set forward and and uh, um, takes the country you know that that enables the country to sort of put itself back together and and uh, proceed into the future with with a better footing I think one of the things that I guess disturbed bothered rang true to me was the insider conversations we see the action from the point of view of U.S. Senator Henley Hornbrook, who is a terrific character. And 
we see the the filibusters on the House. They, tell us about this bill. There's this bill that President Winston Dillard is proposing and really sort of ramrodding through the Congress. Tell me a little bit about the bill, and then let's talk about the insider conversations and how you made it sound so real. Well, the the bill I called the American Economic and Financial Freedom Act of 2010, and it addressed everything from uh, taxes to guaranteed jobs, um, it 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 addressed many areas of uh, that we're seeing currently in government actions where the government is stepping forward and expanding into realms of the economy that it has not ever been involved with um i i went back to washington dc and interviewed um a number of people um back in 2000 when i was contemplating this book and talked to some insiders, if you will, and I rode the tram between the House building and the Senate building and the Capitol and and uh, sat up in the gallery and observed uh, roll call votes and, and the like. And um, that gave me kind of an understanding of, of the mechanics. But honestly, the, the, the insider stuff that goes on is so prevalent these days. Uh, just the the idea of a bill, and we've passed two bills this year in Congress in excess of 2,000 pages, and and you have the the head legislator, the Speaker of the House, saying, "Okay, we have to pass this bill. Then we can. That's the only way we can find out what's in it." Oh, that's just insanity. I agree. I agree, and that's exactly what happens here. Let's talk about Hornbrook. Tell me a little about him. Tell our listeners a little about who Henley Hornbrook is. He's a little bit of a maverick. He is, and frankly, um, when I wrote the the initial draft, he was uh, the minority leader in the Senate. Uh, his party was not in power, but in as as time went on, and I kept rewriting it and looking at the character and how the book went, I ended up turning him into an independent because honestly, I felt you know what. Neither major party deserves this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and probably neither one would be smart enough to run him as a candidate for office. Well, he um see we have this 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 prevalent attitude today that there's there's a question that needs to be addressed at some point and it is very simple. Does man need to be governed or does he just have to be restrained mm. and the problem with the problem is that every single government that's ever been instituted makes the initial assumption that they have to be there because man has to be governed and only the government is smart enough to make sure it's done in a in a judicial manner or, or you know, fairness for all or whatever. And the fact of the matter is the the more they try, the the more they ball it up. And so along comes somebody like Hornbrook, and and I read a review that said uh, he was sort of an idealist. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, and and, uh, they they sort of made it like that was a bad thing. And gosh, Mm -mm. I think we need more. 
I do too. I like we, him. When you have uh, our congressman, my congressman has been in back in Washington for over 30 years. Oh, he has an apartment he maintains in his district, but he lives in Washington D.C. So we have pol- we have professional politicians, exactly. not citizens, who understand day-to-day life. And they're not only are they professional politicians, but they're all wealthy politicians. Oh, absolutely. And it's funny how that always goes hand in hand. Amazing. Anyway, Hornbrook, um, yes, he was a he was a, a history professor uh, in his upbringing and had some radio exposure that that. Uh, helped him run for office the first time. But his passion was history, and he viewed the establishment in the New World, and particularly the United States, as his, the grandest adventure of, of all, um, a wonderful opportunity to, to create a society to, that would be free and open and prosperous because, not because of what government does, but of, because of what government doesn't do. And so he has this great passion for um, the historical roots uh, of much of the country's early years, um, and he tries to bring that perspective uh, into the capital. And then we have this scary president who is the antithesis of Hornbrook. We have President Winston Dillard, who is president for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, he... I. I I actually, you know, sort of characterize him as this evil person um, who's just all about ambition and, and unscrupulous. But he's actually sort of a – he's more shallow than that, actually. He's <laughs> sort of the guy who just wants to be in charge. He just, he just likes – if he can win. He likes the adulation and he likes mm-hmm. the power. Um, the real brains of the outfit is his is the first lady who as a setup for a potential sequel i made her not just first lady but she was she was also uh, a senator from her state and uh, she's the one who has the real political ideology he sort of will go along with anything as long as it keeps him go moving up the political ladder high school never ends he's the popular guy yeah he his, his, his when he first ran for office in high school it was uh, uh, just pr- smile and promise every everybody something that they want. You know, so better food in the cafeteria and, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then he just used that formula as he just climbed and climbed. And it worked. And it worked. And it always works. There's a there's a scene in the in the movie Gladiator that came out with Russell Crowe a few years ago that absolutely, I don't know if, how many people really appreciated it. But there's a phrase called, is a Latin phrase called panem a circensis. It means bread and circuses. And it was a technique by the emperors back in the early ancient Roman times to give um, out freebies, you know, food, free food, bread to the people and stage these glorious spectacles as a means of placating them, uh, um, keeping them happy. And flash forward 2,000 or more years, and, and you have the politicians still promising the same thing. You give out enough stuff to make people beholden to you, and they'll keep voting you into office. I love it. One of my favorite characters, of course, has to be 
Special Forces Major <laughs> Eagle McCall. I love him, and I love that name. It's just a great name. All of the characters were – I took the names off of road signs that I saw along the highways all over America. <laughs> really? And it, the whole the whole book started years before I had a plot. I was driving up I-5 with my family in the middle of nowhere in Northern California, and there was a sign for an exit, and there were two communities listed. One was Henley, and one was Hornbrook. And I said to myself, hmm, what an interesting name that would be for a character in a book. Well, of course, you know, if you're the father and you've got the kids in the back and they're making noise and you're trying to, you know, take yourself into, into some other existence to <laughs> yes. distract you during the miles, <laughs> um, I started looking at paying attention to road signs. And so you get up into Oregon on I-5, and there's a sign that says Winston Dillard. Really? Two, two communities. And you drive the other direction, going south, and it says Florence and Dillard. And so that's how I started to collect the names. And as I would go around different parts of the country, um, we were always looking for names. So Eagle McCall is two communities in uh, Idaho off of uh, Interstate uh, 84. And I thought, wow, that's cool. I actually pulled over and took a picture of it. (laughs) Yeah, because that's a perfect name. That's just perfect for him. He's a perfect character with a perfect name. So he's a little, you know, smart-alecky and a little adventurous, and and, uh, he has a soft side. And um, I, when I I did this... uh, uh, interview for a, a website called My Book, My Movie, where you the author sort of gets to fantasize about his book being made into a movie and who you'd get to play the character. And um, eventually I settled in on Gerald Butler to play Eagle McCall because he was the right age. Mm-hmm. He's uh, par- I needed somebody who was part uh, King Leonidas from, from 300, uh, <laughs> part the smart-alecky wise guy, uh, Mike Chadway from The Ugly Truth, which was another Gerald Butler movie, and part, uh, you know, soft-sighted, tender-hearted Jerry from P.S. I Love You. So that's uh, sort of what I had in mind for uh, the kind of person that Eagle McCall was. Well, and you give him a love interest. We have Sonny Turner, who's Senator Sonny Turner, and she's his love interest. And, you know, this is just... The bill is passed, and then things start to happen. <laughs> and I don't want us to spoil the thriller part of the book for the listeners. But I have a question. We're about to run out of time, and I thought we probably would because this is such a, a an interesting, complicated book. If you could leave the people who are listening to our interview right now with one thought about the book, Robert, what would it be? I hear a lot of comments to the tune of, oh, it can't happen here. Mm. And as I look at what has been going on the past three or four years, I think it's all too obvious. It can happen here. It is People just here. have to understand that it can happen. And what the book is about is a is a potential scenario as to how it could happen. And it's easily how it could happen. 
So if if there's a if 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 you think about people saying, oh gosh, if we don't change things, and by golly, someday it's all going to hit the fan. Well, the Hornbrook prophecy is about that day when it does all hit the fan. Wow. Well, if our listeners want to know more about you, want to know more about other things that you've written, want to know more about the Hornbrook prophecy, let's give them a website they can go to and find out. Well, the simplest thing is just to go to robertwicks.com. It's uh, W-I-C-K-E-S. And that will introduce them to actually both of the books that I have, the nonfiction um, book that I wrote second, but which was public first, uh, published first, and that's the Myth America pageant. And the second book, of course, is the novel The Hornbrook Prophecy. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking time to be our guest today on Inside the Writer's Cafe. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, and this is really a frightening, interesting, terrific book. Thank you very much. I appreciate that very much. <clears throat> thank you, Cheryl. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. And remember, until you join us next time, pick up a good book and read.